Well, good morning, church. We're all seated comfortably, wherever you are. Get comfortable. I'd like to tell you a story. Not a typical hero. This is a story about a bureaucrat. We don't normally put up statues to bureaucrats and functionaries. But this one, he's special. He could have had a good life. In fact, he had a good life. He could be well-paid, looked up to in his community, and he could have died quietly and at peace at home in his bed. But his faith in God and his love for his people drove him to do remarkable things voluntarily. This is an interesting fellow. An old prayer that is ascribed to this or that saint in time, but really hard to nail down says, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And this bureaucrat was in tune with the heart of God, and therefore he wanted, to, he wanted to care about the right things. That would make life a lot easier if we learned how to care about the right things and leave the rest and the fear, as Topper showed us. Let that go. Caring about the right thing. Well, it's been traditional to use Nehemiah as a sermon text for churches that want to build a building or want to build an addition. I think I heard Nehemiah every time we had a building to build or an addition to make. I've also heard him used as a leadership seminar guru, also as a bureaucrat with good intentions and good results. But I think we need to find another way to look at Nehemiah and not pull him out to be used for our own devices. Nehemiah is a model of what God intended when he made men. Now, not people. I think God intended other things when he made women, and remarkable and lovely things, and powerful. But Nehemiah gives us a picture of a very complex creature who does what God wants men to do. So, ladies, I'm not leaving you out of this. I think you will really enjoy this ride. Uh, but you're also a little bit off the hook uh, because I'm going to be talking more about men correcting our behavior. But before we even go there, we need to acknowledge that men have been under attack for a couple of generations. I can remember in the 1980s, the best-selling book, The War Against Boys, that was put out as they studied that the very way that girls learn is the way we model our schools that girls learn well in groups, in rows, being talked to. Boys don't learn that way as nearly as well. They learn much better by basically being thrown into the water and told, figure out how swimming works. They do experience. They do in motion. They learn that way. Well, and again, we have to be very stereotypical here because there are always going to be 20% on either side of the line that this does not apply to. But we're going to play to the majorities here. I think one of the reasons that you're able to do commercials where the man's always the idiot. I don't know if you've ever noticed. The man is always the idiot. And I'm going, well, you know, the lady's looking at him going, you're, you're an idiot. But I'm thinking, you, you picked him. So there's a shared responsibility in this somewhere. But the man's always the butt, uh, the, um, the butt of the jokes. And, but why... Why isn't that more of a problem? I think it's because we realize men are powerful. And if men wanted to stop it, they could. But it would be 
hard and mean, and so men are trying to harness, harness their, their power. They're controlled. And yet, while we're controlled, traditional male pastimes are ridiculed or legislated out of existence. Hunting, playing war games, or the like, they're frowned upon by a media elite that believes that riding in a pickup truck is automatic evidence of a low IQ. Boys are for forced into these learning situations that don't work for them, and when they don't work for them, we tend to medicate them. Because we say, well, then they need to be more like this. Well... The fact that men do so well anyway is due to the characteristics that women like and hate in men at the same time. Ego, competitiveness, aggression, and power. Now, as a 65-year-old, 5'9 fella, we're not talking here physical force. <laughs> I'm not exactly a force of nature. But men have found ways to wield power. And wielding power correctly is a real challenge. There are new cars being made now with names that should really clue us, like Hellcat and Demon. These are versions of the Dodge Challenger, and you can get over 700 horsepower in one of those things. But the problem is, it's still got to connect with your brain, and they very often don't. And someone buys them and wraps them around the first available tree, school, or person. And that's just a tragedy, a misapplication of power. Power under control is a beautiful and a useful thing. So when men bring their power and put it under God's control, not their hormones, not their culture, not their politics, but under God's control, amazing things happen. In case you'd forgotten what that looks like, let's introduce Nehemiah. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in a province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. First and foremost, the man of God is concerned about the things of God, about what matters to God. Nehemiah, very comfortable, very well thought of, very well placed, is concerned about the misery of a people that he's only heard about. He didn't journey back with them. He doesn't see the fallen walls, but he's told they live in a place that's unprotected. They live in a place which is hurt. They need help, and he cares. God's wants and needs consume Nehemiah, not his. What a different way of thinking from the, the consumerist mindset or the power-grabbing mindset or the I-must-have-titles-and-I-must-have-position-and-respect mindset. Nehemiah was the kind of man God wants, where every room, every interaction, the question comes to his mind, what does God want done here? What does God want done with this? It isn't always easy to discern, and we will get this wrong, but asking the question gets us focused in the right direction. But, as Adam read to us, before action, he prays. 
the king said, you're looking downcast. Something's troubling you. And that's not normally you, Nehemiah. Can you tell me what's troubling you? And the scripture says in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that first he went and prayed. And then he came back to answer the king. Now, I do not know if this is the way it is done now at all. Because I, this is not my, my lane, my loop. And I'm not among these people very often. But I know that in the late 70s, we worked for about two years of the church that was primarily made up of Navy personnel. Yet a new church every so often as they shipped off everybody and then they shipped in people. And we're going, we just started fixing the old ones. You know, now we got new people. But I talked to one of them who had been a petty officer and was now an officer. And if you don't know how that works, he went from enlisted to an officer. And that's a big move. And I said, what was that process like? How did you go through it? And he told me a lot, but the thing which, and I forgot all of it, the thing which I remembered was, I asked him, what was the hardest part? And he said, before they would let me go into the, the candidate school, I had to be approved to go into the officer candidate school or officer training school, whatever the Navy calls it. He said, I had to stand before a board. And I forget how many people he said were on the board. I think it was something like three or four. And they're all brass of some level. And there's a clock behind them. And they said, if you'll notice, there is a clock behind us. There's a second hand on the clock. We are going to ask you a series of questions. You are not allowed to answer until the second hand has made a complete journey. And it has been one minute. Do you understand? And he had to stand there. For 60 seconds before he said yes what is your name and they went through this and I he went through it at some detail and I said um why and he said they told me later it was because we needed people on the line who thought before they spoke who did not answer with the first answer but gave it thought and they wanted to make a point and they made a point What's wrong, Nehemiah? What needs done? Let me go pray about that before I answer that. What an interesting, especially in a day and time where people text and text, and you're going, maybe, maybe we should think. Maybe we should pull back. Maybe we should give this some time. Nehemiah's dream was God's dream. Rebuild the walls. Now, we don't have walls around our cities. But as a rule, we don't need them because we have uh, constitutions, we have police forces, we have intelligence agencies, we have, we have generally good protection in our country. There are areas with less and we know that and we mourn for that. But walls meant your identity, you controlled your commerce, you controlled your security. And they weren't safe. One of the reasons God made men like he did was so that people could be safe. Sadly, some men take that power and become predators, which is wrong in every single aspect of it. But God gave us that power to make the world safer, to invent, to build, and to protect. We lived on a mountaintop. Cammie says a hilltop because she's from Colorado and she has standards about what's a mountain. But we lived on a mountaintop in West Virginia for I think about nine years and just dearly loved the people of Morgantown, West Virginia to this day. 
Well, every so often, we had a neighbor that worked for the Department of Natural Resources, and every so often, he would call us and say, get your dogs in, uh, there's been a bear sighted on our mountain. And we, we, we'd get the dogs in. Now, this story would be a lot better story if I'd ever seen a bear. We never saw a bear. What we did see was something else. My son at this time was a little guy. I don't know, six, seven, eight years old. And he came in and said, he said, Dad, there's a big mean dog in the front yard. And my first thought was, that's probably not a dog. And I walked out and uh, we got to the door rather, looked out and it was a very big dog. And it was obvious that the dog had, uh, was in, it was mad. It was a mad dog. Uh, it was slobbering, it was foaming, it was growling and snapping at the air. And I said, all right, son, that's a dog, but it is a danger. I'm going to have to go out and take care of it. And uh, he said, he, I started to walk out and he grabbed me by the belt, which now he could just hold me up and say, dad, that's not a good idea. But back then, I was just, and he said, what happens if you get hurt? And I said, son, this is the only reason women keep us around. If something happens to me, you got to come out. <laughs> and uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure I've toughened him up, and that's why he was a Marine. But anyway, um, it's that whole thing is men do that. Women, women are different on this. And I use this illustration. I taught a course on male and female communication. And I use this illustration a lot. Two men, uh, a man and a woman laying in bed at night, and a noise occurs. Who hears the noise? It's the wife. Why? Because her security is threatened. And for reasons we have never been able to figure out in psychology, and we have tried, they will listen to that noise for a particular length of time before taking any action. Why? It's a mystery. Then they will attempt to wake the husband. Now, attempt is the important word here. Because when men are doing something, that's what they're doing. If they're watching television, we're not discussing. If we are mowing the lawn, we're not thinking. Um, it's just, this is what we're doing. There are times that, you know, Camille and I first married, she'd say, what are you thinking about? And I had two thoughts. One is, if, if you knew, you would never stop slapping me. And the second is, at the moment, nothing. Men are blessed in this ability. Women are able to think about many things. Uh, the way we used to do it back in the day when this made sense, we said that men were DOS and women were windows. You know, and when, in the old DOS system, you can only do one thing at a time. That's a guy. Women are able to think of many things. So she will eventually rouse him when he hears the, well, first of all, he'll deny there's a noise. Men do that. You know, I heard a noise. No, you didn't. I don't know why he thinks she woke him up to lie to him, but that's standard. Then the man will leap out of bed, grab the Louisville slugger from under the bed, go down the hall in his BVDs. And that's when the wife will say something like, what are you doing? get back here. And he's completely lost at this moment, ladies. Just, I want you to, be, uh, he has no idea now what to do because you initiated the sequence. See the bear, kill the bear. He doesn't have any outer thoughts. You're thinking, he doesn't know how to do this. He's going to die. I'm going to have to raise children on my own. He's not thinking about any of that because God made men to be focused. And that's why Every nation that's put women on frontline infantry, I'm not talking about air or artillery, infantry combat has pulled them off. Because women think too much about other things. And men can focus and then focus on something else later. As a rule, 20% either side. 
God focused Nehemiah and he left it all. And he got some help in chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 to rebuild the walls. We don't have to do things on our own. I, I like that about chapter 2 um, and that, that passage of 17, 18, by the way. Uh, he doesn't have to, just to record them. He says, let's start rebuilding. Let's don't just make a note that this is happening. Let's go fix it. Prepare to get uncomfortable. Nehemiah is going to make you uncomfortable regardless of your politics. Left, right, or even if you think you're in the center. When people say they're in the center, they just mean they're where they are and where everybody else should be. So the center means nothing. Left and right means nothing. But one of the problems was that the workers were in danger from other tribes coming in and kicking the walls down, killing them, taking their families. So chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, we won't read all of it. He tells them, Every man has to have a weapon on them, required. And you are to hold that weapon close to you. And there were some that had to build with one hand and weapon out in the other. I'm not sure how that worked. And it may have been hyperbole. But in fact, he said, you can only put it down. It's a very weird phrase. And in, in, in Hebrew, they didn't like talking about bathroom things either. What it means is, when you go to the bathroom, you're allowed to put your weapon down. Other than that, he said, have it there. And I know many people think all weapons are, are icky, but please understand, he first armed guards, and that wasn't enough. So he armed the people and told the people, be armed. And he trained them to keep their weapons with them at all times. But he also trained them that they were not an aggressive force. They were purely defensive. Never chasing after the enemy. Never picking a fight but standing firm where they were to defend the people behind them, the lives and the families behind them. But he does not stop there. And you might be thinking, well, then he must be a Republican. He's arming people and he's all about the guns and the like. No, no. Look at this. Chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Ooh, the people are divided. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. This was Ireland in the 17 and 1800s. This was the Scottish Highlands in the 16 and 1700s. Whenever the owners of the land, most of them absentee from England, said, people, they're too expensive. We're going to clear out. We're going to give them smaller and smaller places. And we're going to put sheep out there instead. And so the farm that you had to feed your family got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then the Irish potato famine hit, which was predictable, preventable, and they had crops available that would have ended the famine overnight, but they didn't care about the Irish. They were lesser. Therefore, they died. 
They got on ships to try to get to America. The Scottish Highlands were cleared out. And I could do that story in a hundred places in Africa, a hundred places in Asia, and I could do that story here. We live in an area, I, I know we're all over the world, but you need to know this. We live in Middle Tennessee. It's one of, one of the best places I've ever seen. It's just amazing. But a lot of people want to move here. And because of that, the housing prices go up. What happens then? What happens is that poorer people who are working just as hard as anybody else can't buy anything here. They can't rent anything here. They get shoved further and further out. Nehemiah was concerned about weapons and protecting them. And people will say that's a right issue. Nehemiah was incensed at social injustice. So what does he do? When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest, which by the way, you weren't allowed to do. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, and he goes on, this is, by the way, this is an amazing passage. And if you have any time, if you're in a house church right now, please, please, please read this chapter. Because he says to them, everybody has the right to live and has the right to make a living. So what's going to happen right now? You rich people are going to forgive every debt these poor people have. Period. You're going to return them their lands. And they are going to be treated as equal citizens with you. You will have no more power than they do. Money is not going to sway this. And that you are never allowed to ever take their land from them. You are never allowed to enslave their people. And the rich and powerful nobles said, Okay. Why? Oh, he's already armed all the people. See how that worked in? It's like, now this army right here is going to make sure God's law is kept. And by the way, he then turns back to the poor. And he says, no one is excused from God's law. Verses 9 through 13 of chapter 5. No one is excused from God's law. Not if you're rich and not if you're poor. You know, some poor people will sometimes think, oh, if, if I want it, I can take it because that's justice. No. God's law applies to all. We have to apply the law to all. Now, in their homogenous society, that's a whole lot easier to do than it is here. But we, as men of God, must be concerned about justice as well as defense. God is... If, if you think God wants you comfortable in your politics, read the Gospels. You will get kicked in the head somewhere by what Jesus says or does. God's not interested in where you draw your lines and declare your party. By the way, there is something amazing in this chapter. Chap uh, more and more and more. Chapter 5 is just stunning. It just really is. Well, what did he do here in verse 14 through 16? Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, listen, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. The earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Wow. 
he paid for his own food. He paid for his assistant's food. He did not lord it over anyone, nor would he allow his assistants to. His assistants had to work on the wall too. Everybody shared. We live in a weird world where if there's a flood as there is, and by the way, our safe harbor is aware that we have people in the flood zones and we're, we're already engaged with them to see what we can do and help them and what they need. And we will let you know as we go through. I've been texting back and forth yesterday and today, and we will be working closely with one generation away because they are already launched into these areas. They, you got to love the Whitney's. I think I need to bring them back to, to, to do another Sunday here. Amen. That said, we live in a nation where if there's a big flood, a hurricane, we get real angry until a politician flies over it in a helicopter and makes a frowny face at it. And then they care. It's all right now. And on Thanksgiving, every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, politicians will go and get at the food bread line to hand out meals to get the pictures taken for 15 minutes. That's not Nehemiah. He says, we don't charge them. We don't tax them. We put no burden on our people. We spend our money to help our people. And that's what Jesus' people do. The men of God do not look around and see something wrong and say, Let's, um, we need to pass a law here. They open their own wallets. They open their own hearts. They take off their watch and ignore their time. And they do the job. That's what men of God do. By the way, could we say this about women of God? I'm not as hard on women as I am on men because I'm, I've never been one. But women, I think, are, are humankind 2.0. God made you far more complex and able and capable. And we'll talk about that someday. When we talk about women, coming up very soon, actually, in these stories. Gentlemen, if I'm just going to put it this way. You see something wrong, put your phone away. Don't record it. Intervene. I've had people say, but if you intervene, you might die. Well, you're going to die. Die with honor. You know, my son wrote a letter to his friends when he joined the Marine Corps because they said, no, you're going to die. We don't like the president. We don't like this. We didn't find the letter till he's in boot camp, and it's probably good, but it basically said, some of you say I might die. The answer is everybody dies. We need to mean something before we die. You don't have to join the Marine Corps. You can go help a widow pay her bills. You can go mow a lawn for somebody who's wounded. You can, you can go clean the front yard of somebody who's, whose back is hurting. Find a way to serve rather than record or talk about problems. I'm looking up at my time. I'm going to go a little bit longer because you people at home may not know this, but we always go out to eat after. And since we've rearranged our services, we get there right before they open and I, I think it probably looks like the Huns are approaching the gates. So maybe, you know, we'll slow it up just a little bit. He would not let his men take land or funds. We, he goes on. He would not let his men misbehave in any way. But then one of my favorite passages in chapter 6. He wasn't afraid to say no. Please, people, no is a spiritual word. Learn to use it. No is a spiritual word, and it's a complete sentence. You don't have to explain it. I was not 
around a lot of things because my, my father kept us busy. But I, can do, I, I do remember one incident. I was in high school where I was sitting in a room and out broke the alcohol. Now, we're not a people that will say that all alcohol is all sin all the time. But when you're a teenager, it's illegal, it's wrong, it's not good for you. And as it came around to me, they offered it and I said, no. And they immediately started, what are you afraid? Are you afraid of this? You can't make up your own mind. And I said, did you? I just did. Did you not see that? I made up my own mind. The hive had a mind. I chose to not. They didn't really get it. No is a spiritual word. It's a complete sentence. You don't have to defend it. So here come the powerful people, the rulers of the people around them, seeing all these walls are going up. This is a concern for us. And so they sent emissaries to say, we need Nehemiah to come to a, a conference to where we can have a peace assembly and understand the rules. And Nehemiah went, no, I'm busy. I'm building walls. They sent him back. Um, maybe didn't know. <laughs> We're really powerful people. We're really important. Come talk to us. No. And then faced with danger, because they did not take that well, they're going to send people in to kill Nehemiah. People find out about it, and they run to him, and they say, you're very important. They're trying to come to kill you. We need to get you off the line. We need to get you back here and protect you. And in Nehemiah 6, verses 11 through 13, he uses a phrase that I and my son incorporated into our lives. Will a man like me run? I love that line. That's better than anything John Wayne ever said. And he was an actor. He wasn't, he wasn't a real cowboy. Nehemiah standing there goes, have you not met me? I don't run. I love that line. But none of that shows his true heroism. And in all the building, using Nehemiah as a way to raise funds for building and such, they never ever, as far as I can remember, growing up, ever brought this up. That the true heroism of Nehemiah is found in chapter 13. Because you see, he'd done all his work. The walls were built. The people were organized. They were following the law that Ezra had read, read to them. All was good. So he went back seriously less funds in his life than he had before. He had depleted a lot of his resources. But he went back to his job. And then he got reports that it was not, the walls were not holding. The people had quit working. Dissension had occurred. There were real problems. And instead of wailing and whining and saying, why won't these stupid people listen to me? He merely does what a man of God does. He got up and he went back to work. And he did it all again. When you're in ministry, you get people who don't understand ministry and understand you're working with volunteers. And these volunteers all have lives. And so it's not like business. It's not like anything else you do. And you will get people, and I'm thinking of one right now, a dear friend in West Virginia, who came up to me and just said, I've had it. I'm done. I'm done. And we had... We didn't like him much, so we made him head of men's ministry. <laughs> That's always frustrating. And he was saying, I try, and, it, and it's, I'm, you know, when, I, I, I'm, I'm, what, you know, I'm just going to give up. 
He looked at me and goes, why don't you give up? And I said, because I have a rule. I want to be as patient with other people as I want God to be with me. He went, ooh, that was low blow. Oh, and I know. <laughs> I have no standards. I'll hold you to this. I want to have, a, I want to have the grace applied to me that I want, therefore I've got to give it to others. That's God's rule. So what does he do? He goes back and clears out the house of God, fed the servants of God who had been neglected, got the tithes going again, because giving is an act of worship. It's an act of faith. It's saying, God, I trust you with this more than I trust me and numbers in a bank. He made the people remember the Sabbath. In other words, rest. You need to rest. I was listening to a a Jewish man talking to a group of Christians uh, on a recording this week and a podcast. And he said, listen, I'm not trying to proselytize you for my faith, but you really do need Sabbath. You need a time where you don't even turn on or off lights. You have a day, you shut it down. And he made a compelling case. And then he called upon fathers to make sure their children were raised and married in the faith. All he asked for at the very end no money, no recompense, no reward, no statue. And by the way, no statue of him exists. No plaque. All he asks is that the Lord would remember him and how much he cared for God's reputation. He didn't care about his. He cared about God's. He was God's man on the scene. And just showing up is a big part of the battle, but it's not all of it. To put yourself your body, your money, your reputation at risk for the reputation of God. That's what he calls for. Think about the men and the women in the Bible. None of them were perfect. But they showed up. I, one of the things I would often say to Cammie in one of our early works was, I am so not the right guy for this job. But I'm the guy that's here. So we're going to try it. I think history proved I was not the right guy for that job, by the way. But I was there. You know, at least I caused a mess. You know, that's a, if that's all I can do. Martin Luther used to say, Lord, let me sin boldly. In other words, if I make a mistake, let me make it because I'm being bold for you. Eyes open. Hearts open. Mind engaged. Be alert. Be aware. Take a deep breath and ask, God, what do you want done? right now. And when in doubt, look at Jesus. Find the heart of God. And that's going to be our song as we begin to close today. And then we will be led in a closing prayer. Those of you in the flood areas, and from what I understand, the hardest hit are um, Las Vegas, um, St. Louis, and eastern Kentucky. Please reach out to us if there's something we can do and help. You know, we are a small group with a tight budget, but we share. That's, that's part of who we are. Dave, I want to switch mics. There we go. We want to be near the heart of God. And so that's our close. That's what Nehemiah wanted. He was God's man on the scene.